Hello. Hello, Matt. Yes. Hi, this is Susie. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Susie? Yeah, very good. We um, I've got Pella here. We're just waiting on Dave for a moment. How are you? Okay, great. Good. How are you, Pella? Pleasure to meet you. Likewise. So Jay's also here. He's just uh, he's just downstairs. He'll be up in in a second. And we're uh, okay. Very I just figured we great. might. Great. I'm do very a excited as well. <laughs> yeah. I just figured we might do a quick test on maybe you can just ask one quick question of me or something like I don't know my birthday or something so we can make sure the quality is all good for you. Yeah, sure. So why don't you just uh, talk about your agency and where it's located or something like that? Uh, yeah, so BBHLA, we're based in West Hollywood on Melrose Avenue, um, opened in 2010, as far as I <laughs> got that right. That's yeah. um, okay, great. Just ex- so that's all good from your side? Yes, all good. Um, there's like a slight uh, lag or delay, but I think we should be good so long as we all uh, do our best conference call etiquette. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, I can hear that slight lag too. But um, as long as we're aware of that, fingers crossed that's all good from your side. Um, Yes, all good. I will just make sure the guys are all ready, and then I'll lead you guys to it. Okay, sounds good. Um, This is very exciting. I think uh, this is our... Jay's right outside finishing a call. Uh, this is our first podcast together. Oh, I think that's a very, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I I had my podcast virginity taken uh, <laughs> about six months ago, but it was just me, and that was not as interesting. Or actually, it was with were you no, gentle? Was were you gentle with your? <laughs> yes. Were you gentle, gentle with yourself taking your? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and my. Uh, I, I, this is going to get weirder, but I did it with the Swedish ambassador to the U.S. I'm Swedish, by the way. Um, and, right, and okay. Also, also American citizen, but um, so it was, uh, yeah, first time was with an ambassador, too. <laughs> That's very cool. My first podcast was with uh, Noam Chomsky, who's an intellectual hero of mine, which was pretty exciting. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a great format. You know, I've, obviously, it's, it's great to see the the rise of a format like that. It's, you know, in, in our world, it's a bit of a, you know, there's so many new cool digital formats and things, and then to just, mm-hmm. like, ori- original talk radio kind of coming back in. Yeah, it's just being, I mean, I personally, I follow, I think, right now, what is it? Five political podcasts back to back, and I have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's just it's just an amazing format. How long how long have you been doing it? Like in into it. You know, Jay. Oh, hey Jay. Hi. Who's that? Nice to meet you. This is Matt Berber from Make a Difference Entertainment, and you're on Made from Scratch oh. here on Anchor. This is us. This is the thing that we're yeah. going to do. I'm taking this is that thing, man. Things. I'm t- taking all <laughs> noisemakers out of my pocket. Yeah, I'm going to turn off my phone. Looking to see if anybody has a writing. In- what did I do with my briefcase? Not that it's making a handle. 
And we've remembered a little bit of a lag, although just so you're aware of it. I assume we're not recording yet during this. We actually are. Well, we we are now. We we yeah we are recording, but I can I can edit this yeah I can edit this down so that uh, when it actually gets put out, it's all clean and shiny. So uh, okay, well hi. Hi. And uh, and let me warn you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. I want to warn you of one thing, and uh, Matt, I don't know if you are your own editor or if you work with an editor on the podcast. I have a tendency to speak in run-on non sequiturs. So okay, you, perfect. If at any time we're gonna vibe, time, we're gonna vibe just fine. We're gonna vibe just fine. Then. <laughs> yeah, but so you may be able to make sense of it live, but it will definitely be incumbent upon you to try to make sense of it once you're editing. And if if, if there's anything I say to you or to Pella in the midst of this that makes you feel like it could be said far more succinctly if said again. Please just stop me and say, try that again. You won't offend me. Okay. All right. All right. Great. That sounds good. You've done so. You've done. You've done well so far. So uh, oh, here, well, why don't I set everything up? And, and I'm <laughs> you want to just end it there? Linguistically from the beginning. <laughs> okay. And I'm a philosophy major from college, so I will also run on in non sequiturs. So I think we'll back. Oh, that's great because I've I've been kind of obsessing for the last. 72 hours since spending time with, uh, I think, both of our daughters, new English teachers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Lopez? Yes. So, uh, who can't help but put you in an existential state. He's such a good teacher. Well, I haven't met him but, but he went off on uh, Neil and Kundera, the unbearable lightness of being for a moment, uh, in terms of why he likes literature. Oh, wow. And he said, I like literature. All right, so this is my first opportunity to stop you right there. Let me, let me reel <laughs> well, I thought you said you had some shit. To, I thought you said you had some shit to set up. I was just shooting the shit with Tyler. I did, I did, I did. No, no, okay, so we, 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 we shot the shit, so let me set the shit up. This um, I'm Matt Berman from Make a Difference Entertainment. This is made from scratch on Anchor. I'm here with two of advertising's heaviest hitters, and I thought I'd give you guys a chance to introduce yourself. So, Jay, why don't you kick it off and tell the folks your name, your title, the company you're with, and maybe some sort of noteworthy campaign they would know you for. Hello, I am Jay Goodman. I work at Creative Artists Agency. I'm the co-head and chief creative officer of CAA Marketing. I would hope that somebody out there would be familiar with some of our work, but our work for Chipotle tends to be the most recognizable. Okay, uh, awesome, I can, awesome. I, I can echo that, that, that it is amazing. I love that stuff. Uh, I am Pelle Chanel. It's a Swedish name, so but it's kind of like a soccer player, Pelle, and then handbag Chanel, if you want to pronounce it right. Uh, and I am a Swedish guy working for a British agency owned by the French here in LA. Uh, and uh, that agency is called BBH, and I am the worldwide chief creative officer of that, uh, working out of LA and overseeing our seven offices that are Mumbai, Shanghai, Singapore, LA, London, and Stockholm, New York as well. Um, and uh, some of our, it's been around for 35 years, a lot of famous work throughout the years. I think uh, recently, I think that I've been part of our, the launch of Google Chrome a couple of years ago. Uh, we recently had some interesting stuff 
coming out of our London office, which is for Absolute, which is a great kind of revamp of the brand I'm very proud of as well. Okay, great. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you both for that. And so you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but, uh, you know, I think you guys have a unique relationship because you're not only professional colleagues, you're friends as well. It sounds like your daughters know each other. So can you tell me a little bit about how you first met or how that relationship evolved? I, can I, is it okay if I start? Because yeah. I was uh, yes. I was a lost yeah. I was lost sweet on the prairie in Minneapolis. It was my first gig in the U.S. And uh, <laughs> even before that, I had heard that Jay Goodman had gone to CAA, which is uh, incredible, uh, smart and historic move from an advertising guy to get on the inside of entertainment. And it was kind of exactly what I was hoping to do somehow, somewhere. So I tried to get a job with Jay. I was there with my brother at the time. We worked kind of a, uh, an expensive Swedish duo, I think, so we didn't really work out that time. <laughs> and then I consistently been trying to get into Jay's mind into, and always followed his kind of, uh, uh, and, you know, his, his strides in reinventing, I think, what we do in terms of advertising and entertainment and brands and, and all that that's now fully kind of in bloom in many exciting ways. But Jay was one of the first ones, and uh, salute to that. And uh, then, funny enough, you know, I obviously wanted to end up here in L.A., and now we even have a school together and daughters and, and parent-teacher conferences and all these things. But it all led <laughs> to to that from the beginning, from my end. We even very occasionally go on a bike, we even very occasionally go on a bike ride together. Yes. We aspire to do it more. <laughs> So we've we, we <laughs> nice. we, gone from uh, mutual admiration, because I, I feel the same way. I can tell you a very similar uh, genesis story in terms of my relationship with Pella, in that, like all creatives, I'm ego and insecurity, and you never know which part is bigger in any given moment <laughs> or day. And I was uh, a huge admirer of the first, quote-unquote, Swedes up at Fallon, uh, and then that was Linus and Paul. And then years later, the new Swedes came in. And the new Swedes were every bit as culture shifting in their weirdness, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> but they did it, and I mean this in all due respect to Linus and Paul, with an intelligence and ability to mess with media in a way that I'd never seen before. And so I was deeply envious of the new Swedes. And when they came into my office at Creative Artists Agency a decade ago, I, I to this day am embarrassed that at the time the, the business just wasn't evolved enough for us to be able to afford them. Uh, I, I kind of mm. wish maybe I had gone and somehow found the money to make the leap because who knows where we would have ended up, although I think it's safe to say we would have ended up in Los Angeles together <laughs> doing things on behalf <laughs> of brands that don't look like good old interruptive advertising. Yeah. Right, right. Also, wow. I think we, we we both subscribe to, you know, in this fast-moving, transformational world of for brands and and everything is that it's an all ships rise thing. So I'm, you know, I'm equally proud of the things that Jay does for for driving our, making our industry thrive forward. Or um, as you know, when when I get the chance to do things, so I don't. I think it's actually maybe it turned out to be even better that we. Did it do it from two ends, you know, because I, I think and mm -hmm. there, are, there are others also, but I think that's the, you know, it's, 
innovation time. I feel like uh, we could have been the Xerox camp back in the, what is it, early 80s or 70s, where there were lots of the kind of, but uh, we didn't share the same place, but we kind of, it was similar, I think. And uh, Oh, you mean Xerox Park for Silicon Valley. Exactly. Yeah, in, in, I mean, there's definitely, and we're 10 years into it, yet it still feels early. I don't know if this is a word, mm-hmm. but it feels mm-hmm. like an incubatory moment still. Yeah. Meaning it's still a lab. We we were mm-hmm. both very lucky. You look at each of our client lists. You know, I mean, your, your work with Google, the JV you've created with Scooter Braun, who spends as much time with you now as he does with Creative Artists Agency. And a shout out to him for putting on um, that amazing tribute to Houston. Yes, uh, starting at eight o'clock oh, today. Uh, yeah, so if we were running this today, but I, I said it in the past tense because I figured this isn't live. Good, okay. Uh, so, but if you look at, you know, our, our client list, we both share Diageo, we have AB InBev, Coca-Cola, General Motors, obviously Chipotle, Bonobos, like, we both have these great client lists who are asking us to do things differently, but we're still very much in the incubation stage in terms of what different means, what different is, how different behaves in culture. There are so many emerging formats and old formats that need to be reinvented that we both really feel like we're still very much at the beginning of a new era of marketing services. And we talk about that a lot. Wow. Probably more in our free time, more in our free time than we should. We'll go out for a drink with our wives. You know, that's an interesting, it's an interesting segue to the next question I wanted to ask, which is um, advertising and media, I think, attract a very specific kind of person. And Jay touched on the balance of a heavy ego and a heavy insecurity. So can you speak to what it is about advertising or media that attracted you um, professionally or somehow what it fulfills personally? Oh, in the first place? Yeah, I I think this is somewhat true of a lot of quote-unquote creatives, and I say quote-unquote in in, uh, advertising because I never thought of myself as an artist. I always think of myself as a solution provider. I just happen to use creativity to help a brand sell theirs over another. Uh, but, But I do think I fall into the category of someone who had artistic leanings but really like business. And I like consumerism. Mm. And I really like the idea that an idea can convince somebody somewhere to choose product A over product B or candidate A over candidate B, that they might choose what they wear or where they live or what they eat based on a persuasive idea that I helped put into culture. I'm still fascinated Mm. By that. So it's kind of a, a combination of that, that intellectual thought, if it's intellectual, uh, and then the fact that it's driven by creativity. The, the flip side of that, I think, is um, I also saw it as a bit of a healthy compromise. And this is the thing you hear a lot from co- copywriters and art directors, in particular early in their career. If you're going to go for it as an artist, it seems to me you have to be either really rich or really poor. Uh, and most of the artists I kind of love either had nothing and so totally went for it artistically or had a safety net and totally went for it artistically. But if you kind of grew up like I did, which is I started out extremely poor myself, but by the time I got out of high school, kind of middle class, maybe even upper middle class Silicon Valley, and I, I enjoyed the comforts 
associated with those people who have a job. And so I maybe lost a little bit of the desire to go for it entirely artistically and then got sucked back in by that intellectual artistic balance of, well, wait a second, I can use that thing inside me that I like to call an artist to do something that's actually a viable career. And I kind of just fell mm-hmm. in love with that balance. And here I am 20 years later. Yeah. I think for me it's similar. I came from an intellectual family. So my, my Sweden, uh, my, my grandfather on my mother's side was one of the 18 to give the Nobel Prize in Literature, and his wife was a very uh, significant ballet crit- critic. My father's, uh, my grandfather on my father's side was in Parliament, and my grandmother on that side uh, was one of the first female CEOs of a government um, um, company. So it was like, and my dad is a doctor, my mom is a, um, is a publisher in, and a, a kind of a professor in, uh, in Strindberg and things. So me and my brother, we had no choice but to do something else. It was like, <laughs> compete with that. Uh, it was never money. It was never the way it was. It was kind of, it was, uh, you know, I just quickly realized that we had to find something. And creativity for me was in was a was an undefined territory where I couldn't be measured, really, because uh, and especially specifically going into um, my my story starts in when I'm 13 years old in advertising. I saw a Levi's commercial uh, laundrette with Nick Kamen walking into, um, and that was made by BBH. Funny enough, uh, and <laughs> it changed my life completely. I was in that theater and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm in Sweden. We don't even have advertising, only on cinema. And I, you know, I wanted to be in it, around it, whatever it was. It was culture. And I think... So the girl steals the guy's pants out of the laundromat and walks out? No, he comes in and then he puts a lot... He takes his pants off and all the ladies are looking at him. Ah, right, and right, then right. he puts rocks, a bag of rocks who was stonewashed. It gotcha. was the first one and it's uh, Jim Hendrix Crosstown Traffic. Gotcha. It. So it's kind of a... Um, and um, I think, you know, what Jay just said, I think is, I, I kind of, I don't see myself as an artist. Uh, I do have art, artistic tools to my, uh, to my use, but I think it's, what's exciting to me is that it's the opposite of being an artist. An artist makes something that people can interpret, or I can have a reason, right? Let's, I make, let's say I make a painting or a song and it's about my mother, where you guys can be, oh, that's about life, or that's about my, you know, it's about love, or it's about, could be, it's interpreted, but our jobs can, what we do can never be interpreted. It's mass communication. It has to be mm. measured and understood the exact same way for everyone. And that's an even harder creative challenge, I think, in some ways, than self-expression. Um, it's, it's gone for hire to make someone else communicate in a way that the masses understand, which I think is you know, it's a form of artistry, I think. I mean, any, any job is a form of artistry in, in one way or the other. But I think it's, we use the same creative tools. That's why it's similar to artistry when it's words and it's, it's beauty, it's colors, it's, it's you know, those things. Um, but I think what we basically are, and I think that's a, it's like we're, we're cultural engineers. If you, like, if you mm. really go back to, to Silicon Valley, <laughs> you're like, we can create things that are part of culture 
uh, that are uh, engineered for a certain purpose. It's not just a, an expression of where the we obviously touched in with the zeitgeist. That's why the things that Jay has done for Chipotle, for instance, is incredibly important for how food is made today. That's why we all care about it, and it's done in a beautiful artistic way to make everyone who sees it understand the purpose of that brand and what they're doing, but also delivered in an artistic way. So there's lots to be loved, to love about that for, I guess, people like us. And I think also the it draws to the ego part, like there aren't that many jobs where the world can see your work. Mm-hmm. Musician, actor, director, advertising, and some other things. It, it, it attracts a lot of people and actually, it attracts a lot of the wrong people who are there for the fame and are there to kind of to be seen. As, but I think the few of us who survived this game, like Jay and I, actually care about the the work and making uh, you know love advertising, love that it's you know it's mm. not love being in advertising, it's love yeah, in advertising. It's funny that uh, I, I never thought about it in terms of same, although I could list for you the names of all my heroes in advertising, but I think yes. that's a function of you and I being students of it yeah. more than anything else. When I walk around the world, or I, in my case, maybe jog around the world, everywhere I travel around the world, I always go for a run. When I when I get there, it clears my head, it gets me ready for the meeting. And whenever I see a piece of my or our work someplace in the world, all I see is the compromises. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's a billboard or a television ad or a piece of content, you know, our, our Coca-Cola polar bear film ran in 84 countries, and I can't remember where I saw it, or you know, probably on an airplane, Delta Airlines. I say, I say probably, I know exactly where I saw it uh, on a Delta Airlines. <laughs> and and we worked really hard on it, right? And and John Stevenson, who directed Kung Fu Panda, directed it, and Dave Reynolds, who wrote Finding Nemo, wrote it, and Lin Manuel Miranda was the voice of one of the Polar Bears, and Army Hammer was the voice of another, and like there are a lot of things about that to love, and I was watching it, and I just felt myself getting more disappointed and more embarrassed because there wasn't <laughs> enough conflict in the story. There was no conflict in the story, and I, I just in my head went back to the first meeting with our client, who's amazing, and he drove this thing through Coca-Cola. It's Pio Schunker. He's a rock star at Samsung now. So this is in no way to suggest anything other than, than he and we helped put something meaningful and valuable out into the world. But, but back to that insecurity, as, as I saw it, I remember the first meeting with Pio where a group of us took him through all of our favorite animated films. And so we put The Lion King down. In The Lion King, there's Scar. There's Scar. And Scar kills his brother, which makes Simba an orphan. And in the opening scene mm. of Bambi, a hunter kills Bambi's mother. And if you go through all of your favorite, in particular, animated films, something terrible usually happens in the first act that creates conflict mm-hmm. and a the hurdle on the hero's journey for our hero to overcome. So we had really wanted to put something of that type of emotional force into the world on behalf of Coca-Cola that, of course, would land on happiness, their brand proposition, but in order to get to happiness, we needed to move through conflict. And in the end, on Delta Airlines, on that little 4-inch by 5-inch screen, (laughs) 
all of those great actors and great directors, by the way, produced by Ridley Scott, like, like everything lined up for success, and all I could think was, damn it, there's not enough conflict. So yeah. Now this is a perfect. It's another. It's another perfect. It's another. It's a. It's a good segue because um, I wanted to take a little trip down memory lane, and you already kind of uh, jogged your way in there. So I wanted to see if you guys could touch on um, your first job or campaign that you remember, or at least the first significant one, um, and why. You know what what you learned from that. A favorite campaign and a least favorite. Which Jay, you just kind of maybe hinted at maybe least is not the right word maybe least favorite no least no 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 i love it. that i i love that campaign the point of that story was only that on the heels of Pella saying your work can be seen around yeah. the world and that's one of the benefits of what we do i simply took that and digressed into when i see it i somehow only see the compromises yeah. that's all so no, that, that is a favorite of mine. That makes the high favorites list for sure. Matt, this is your podcast, okay, great. but I would I would love to if it's cool. I would love to add to what Jay is talking because I think it is profound. Yes. Where where the where brands and and entertainment and things are going, which is kind of that place where we 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 talk about that we we're excited about. Conflict is a really really interesting point here because. When you, when you at, if you have at your disposal 30, 60 seconds or posters or out of homes or shortcut things, as a brand, you're not going to go conflict. Fair enough. Mm. You know, you're gonna, that's why you see the world of advertising is usually a great one. Everyone's having a good time. It's inspirational, aspirational, whatever, you know, all those things. There's a reason for it because you have a short amount of time to, to say what you're selling. But if you look at the biggest, the biggest heroes in the world, the best stories, the best songs, the best, all those things that people actually care about that we interrupted with those ads, they are there because of conflict. So if you look at mm-hmm. a great, amazing examples in our world now is obviously the Lego movie. If we yep. just break it down, yeah. super simple. That is a great movie because of conflict. And the conflict was found in the product. It was those who build by the rules, or those who see a pile of imagination and possibilities. Two different types of people, two things that is a conflict in the product. If I was sitting in a, in a meeting here in this office with a client who had 30, 40, or 60 seconds, I would say pick imagination or education. That's it. Like we have to pick one. All our strategists would say that. Mm. All the schools of Unilevers or PNGs or everything, everyone would say that. But if you are going to entertain for one and a half hours and make a memorable story that no one is ever going to forget, you go, that's the beauty of of that story. It's the conflict in the product that makes dad the bad guy who wants to even glue the pieces together because they're perfectly built, and the son who wants to create things and, and use imagination. Makes for a great story. So I think that's an interesting thing is that when we now have this type of talent at our disposal, the disposal that, that Jay is talking about, is it's really hard for brands who are used to testing things for great thumbs up because we, I really like this story. If you present death, uh, you know, uh, illness, devastation, uh, natural disasters, you know, all these kinds of things that you need to create real big heroes and great stories. So I think it's a really, that's something that we're battling with, but those who understand it, the brands who are going there, they will get great benefits from the audience to, to kind of, I saw the other, way, the other day, I don't know if you've seen it, but 
uh, The Tale of Thomas Burberry. Of course. Right. It's an amazing, uh, it's a 60, 90, two minute thing. It's the, it's the most amazing overproduced uh, trailer for whatever <laughs> is going to come out. Ever. Right. Yeah. It's done by a guy named Greg Stodgen. Burberry's a recent former client of ours. He worked with them for years. Yeah. Uh, and Greg Stodgen is the in-house chief creative officer there. It's fantastic. And he he built the right team and crafted that to perfection. And it has the benefit of also being true. It's the, yeah. It's the authentic story of Thomas Burberry. But the conflict is there. He lost, uh, he lost uh, Shackleton up in, in, the, uh, in the North Pole. He, he cheated on his wife with, um, with uh, uh, what's her name, Earhart, who flew over down to South Africa. It's all there in the history of the brand that it was an innovator, but also all the conflict. There was war, there were, that's where the trench coat was in, invented. All those things are in there. And if, that, if they wouldn't have had that amount of time and amount of, you know, entertainment at their disposal, we would have seen the great shots that would be fashion, and it would be, you know, the beauty would be there and the aspiration, but not the conflict. Well, that's interesting. That's, uh, maybe we're way off on a digression about story <laughs> and conflict. Keep rolling, keep but, rolling, keep rolling. Uh, Stodgen and the team at Burberry gave themselves permission to move out of the glossy world of fashion, which does, you know, overspend on production all the time to create a quote-unquote story. But the story, for the most part, even if provocative, lacks conflict. And where they went with the tale of Thomas Burberry was right into conflict, the true conflict of a a great founder who created an iconic product and they told the story in a way that a fashion brand just wouldn't or doesn't. But again, they had the unique benefit among all the fashion houses of having that story be true. They didn't have to write a story. All they had to do was write the story, and then yeah. they told it beautifully. And then, as a consumer, mm. or whatever we call us nowadays, audience, people, people humans, I go, I'm looking for authenticity in brands. You know, there's so many out there. They're all screaming for my attention. Now I know where Burberry came from. I, all of a sudden, I actually know I'm not going to confuse Mulberry and Burberry anymore. <laughs> and I'm going <laughs> to put them in a different, a different box where I know the founder story. I know, you know, it's similar to, and that's, so I think there is, you brought up uh, conflict, and I, but I think it's, it's a profound finding in our little uh, uh, scientific in our 10-year adventure so far. <laughs> exactly. So we, we end up having that conversation a lot. Yes. So you asked a different question, sort of origin story. Yes, question. cool. Let's but go back to that. You start, Jim. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, first best hated. Okay, well, I would never admit hatred, I think. Uh, let's see where we go with it. So uh, it, it's a little bit tied up in the origin story, I guess. Uh, I, I grew up working, and when I, when I was kind of, when I got to the middle, upper middle class Silicon Valley that I, that I mentioned, I worked for a famous concert promoter named Bill Graham. Really, you know, first real rock and roll promoter. I had the best job in the world. Uh, got to see all my musical heroes. Uh, came down to UCLA, got a job at another music promoter. Really thought that's what I was going to do, uh, except that the music promoter didn't offer me a job at the end of college. 
He said, I have a better idea. All you ever talk about is skiing. I know the guys at Warren Miller Films. I was like, I love their films, but they must live in the mountains somewhere. He said, no, they live in Hermosa Beach. Like, you should go, I know them. You should go meet them. So it was a 13-person company. I spent uh, a year of my life there, uh, which means I'm really good at carrying really heavy stuff up mountains, and I'm pretty good (laughs) at getting it on my back and skiing back down the mountains. Uh, So, yeah, I love to remind people. That anything that you've seen, those amazing skiers in those movies, ski down, um, there's someone else who's capable of skiing down it with 100 pounds on their back, and and I am one of those someone. So anyway, uh, what I really learned from that job, however, is that film, the way it was made, they offset their roughly million-dollar annual production budget with about a million dollars in sponsorships. The resorts would pay for a scene. The skis would pay for a scene. The goggles, the clothes, everybody would pay for their scene, including Nissan, uh, who paid a lot of money to be kind of the official 4x4, the Nissan Pathfinder of, of Warren Miller film. So very early on, this idea kind of seeped into my mind that there was a different way to market. So hold that thought, because after 45 years in Hermosa Beach, Warren Miller and his son, Kurt, finally decide that, uh, that this company belongs in the mountains. They move it to Boulder, Colorado. I have a girlfriend who could work many places in the world, but Boulder, Colorado isn't one of them. I bet on the girl over the job. We've been married over almost 20 years now and have a 16-year-old and 11-year-old. Good so call. Out great. Except that that means I had to find another job. And they said, we know some people at an ad agency, so why don't you go meet them? They wanted to be part of the movie. They couldn't be. So Honda's ad agency, RPA, I learned everything I know about client service there. It is one of the best client service organizations to this day. Jerry Rubin, Larry Prosper, two of the great gentlemen of the business. But I didn't last long there uh, because technology came on in advertising. So as you recall, before, you know, early Apple and aside early Apple was early IBM. And the IBM ads started to get more technical and more technical. So a search went out for a copywriter who could write the more technical advertising. And somehow, somebody knew that I grew up in Silicon Valley, and I got a call from Ogilvy and Mather and that said, we don't need you to come write the big, sexy, blue bar. Uh, oh, I knew it was. Eric Hadley was an account guy at Ogilvy and Mather. And he said, we'll get this guy, Jay Goodman. He grew up in Silicon Valley. He can, if he doesn't understand how it works, he can at least make it sound like he does. And so I found myself writing, I, I kid you not, four-page gatefold ads in magazines like Computer Reseller News and VAR Business. And what these were, because this is relatively pre-pervasive Internet, especially consumer Internet, right? So these magazines, VAR Business, VAR is value-added reseller, these were the magazines for the, for the teams of people, the salespeople who are out in the world selling IBM computers and accessories to all of the companies in the world. And they need to know the speeds and feeds, the specs of everything IBM is selling that week. And the way they knew that was they read VAR business and they read computer reseller news. These ads were not the highlight of my creative career, I assure you. I wrote about (laughs) token ring adapters. I wrote about PCMTIA cards. I can write about technologies that have been outdated for 20 years to this day. What that led to, however, was one of my favorite campaigns in that, as I understand it, in Portland, Oregon, 
roughly the time I was writing these gatefold, very technical ads for the IBM PC company, an agency called Weidman Kennedy had won Microsoft. And they'd done their first brand campaign, Where Do You Want to Go Today? And it had gone very well for them. So the marketers at Microsoft said to Weidman Kennedy, we'd like to give you more business. We want to give you the Windows operating system business. We're, we're working on something called an internet browser that we're going to want you to market. And again, as the story goes, I wasn't in the room, uh, but Andy Burnt, who's now at, at Google Creative Lab, apparently held up one of my four-page gatefold ads in a meeting and said, well, I have no idea if this person is any good creatively, but we know he can write the awful technical stuff. Let's find him. So I got phone call over to The next thing I know, I'm in Portland, Oregon. In August, they always recruit in August at Wyden Kennedy. Uh, and, and there I was. Uh, they only asked me one question in the interview. Chris Riley, who's now at Apple, asked me the question. He said, Microsoft is a monopoly. Why should they advertise? And I said, well, they have a choice. They can be the evil monopoly or the benevolent monopoly. And I think if they advertise and make people feel good about it, that expresses their benevolence. And he said, I don't know if you're right or not, but we're betting on it because we don't get paid otherwise. <laughs> so I got the job. And this leads, this leads to my favorite moment. And then I'll let someone else talk to you. So a few years into my great, great pleasure of working at Wyden & Kennedy, as Janet Champ put it, Wyden & Kennedy in the 90s is Paris in the 20s for advertising. Ads mattered. You're up there in the trees. Everybody you're there with is the most intellectually diverse, culturally diverse person in Portland, maybe that you've ever met. And so your whole life revolves around the culture of Wyden Kennedy. And of course, that ego and insecurity thing plays in everybody there is so much better than you are at what you do. So you just dedicate your life to doing better work. And I got the opportunity to do some of my favorite work within that, where back to that monopoly word, uh, Microsoft got sued by the Department of Justice for being a monopoly. At this point, I'm in my early to mid-20s, and Dan Wyden says to me, you're the only person we can put in a room up there in Redmond who's capable of understanding what they're talking about in this very important moment. So get on the next plane and just do your best to get in and out of their life. And so I find myself in a room as an early 20-something with, with Steve Ballmer, who, whom I've run into since, and said, I'm sure you won't remember me, but at which point he, in his kind of great, insane energy, said, of course I remember. Those were the craziest days. Uh, and so I find myself in a room with him, occasionally with Gates, with Bill Newcomb, their, their main lawyer, with Mitch Matthews, who was running PR, who became the CMO. And, and what I ended up getting the opportunity to do was write the story of Silicon Valley on behalf of Microsoft and essentially say in the Washington Post and in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times in these full-page ads that to punish Microsoft was to punish the system and that right now there are two people in a garage somewhere in Silicon Valley who were working on the idea that could fundamentally disrupt Microsoft and that was the beauty of it. And how could we punish a company born out of a kid so passionate about technology that he used to sneak out of his bedroom at night and sneak into the computer lab at the University of Washington? And yes, that guy became Bill Gates, but it's because he was capable. And in a system, in our, in our consumerist capitalist economy, he won. 
And so we need to champion our victors, not punish our victors. And so I had these headlines, like, if technology is the engine of the new economy, who has their hands on the wheel? And the answer would be, well, we all do, and here's why. And so that is my, my to this day, with all the great things we've done at Creative Artists Agency, and I, I, I love everything we've done, everything I also did at Widen & Kennedy, at other agencies along the way, I don't know that I'm ever going to have more of an apex moment in the experience of being a creative solution provider than writing in real time these impassioned pleas to, to culture makers and policy makers and business leaders that, that Microsoft was, was the company we needed to champion in the moment where it needed us most. And the world wanted to vilify mm. them, and it was my job to persuade the world not to. Amazing. Wow. I, uh, That's some heavy I, shit. Like, what am I, I going to talk about now? I think I have, um, I have one, one thing from Sweet, the Swedish days, and then one thing that's going to combine our stories, I think, from, from Google days. Uh-huh. Uh, so the first one is, um, so I'm, I'm lucky to also have had uh, this, my wife. We met when I was in ad school. Um, and I bet on her to go to L.A. because she had gone to school here that summer. Uh, and um, I was her then 11-year-old brother's friend officially, cause, so she's half Persian, half Swedish, the Persian community out here we visited. And I saw L.A., but I was, so I was the, the weird guy who was kind of following his family who was the not officially the boyfriend, but was the 11-year-old friend. I was 21 at the time, I think. Um, anyways, I uh, saw the entertainment industry, and I saw Hollywood, and I was like, I'm going to be here when these – my industry is going to merge with this industry, and I'm going to be here when it happens. Uh, and I think I am. And it's, it's, that's been one – for us as a family and for me professionally, has been one goal for 25 years, uh, and I've – done nothing else. There's been some, obviously, ways to get there. So the first thing that I think was success in the entertainment and advertising space for me was the kind of the Walmart of Sweden, ICA, which is ICA. It's, a, it's kind of, it's got grocery stores all across the country. It's the big one. It's the kind of close to monopoly situation. And we, there was a pitch and the creatives, I was one of them. We were all like, that's boring. We shouldn't do like they've never done anything good ever. Uh, we were so wrong uh, because our uh, our business director said, you know what? Why don't we? You know, if we just do what we believe in, and they don't take it, then fine. So what we did is you looked at. So this is interesting in terms of uh, retail now. So they had weekly ads with um, with groceries, right? So they have the things that you see like uh, or that you have mailers sent home with like the the uh, Coca-Cola, the uh, yep. power bars, the all the way down to potato and things, right? That was one budget. It was a lot of money. It was weekly, but it was paid for by the the, uh, the brand. And then you had your yearly brand communication, very lofty about you know uh, the brand Ica and how imp- you know how important they are, their values and things. But it was very little connection between the commerce and the brand. And what we did is we invented a soap. Today, I think it's over, closing in on a 1,000 episodes. It's 12 years deep. Uh, 
it's a soap that plays out in the ad break, still in Sweden, and it's done so for 12 years. It's uh, Stig, who is the owner of the local IKEA store. And uh, the characters have changed a little bit over time now, but in the beginning it was him. He has no idea what he's doing, really. He kind of is the kind of the, um, the, the guy that things bounce off comedically. And then you have his daughter who actually runs the store. She knows everything, but she's not, kind of, you know, she's not celebrated for running, but everyone knows she's running it. And then there are the two idiots, comedy idiots, like Dumb and Dumber, who work in the store who don't understand anything. And one of the first episodes we launched it around Christmas was when Roger uh, couldn't believe that, that Santa wasn't real. So it was just that, that level of dumb. But what it was was every week when they were working in the store and we had comedy going on, they also up, you know, they kind of put the groceries up in the store, and we, you have the weekly prices of like hot dogs and Coca-Cola and chips and mm. popcorn. So it was basically a brand campaign that's been paid for by others for 12 years, and they have, they have, you know, they we won everything in terms of creative awards and things. It was very Swedish. We didn't, you know, it never really worked in in terms of international, but. It's been amazing. We've had the first Down syndrome actor that's become a big actor in Sweden. We had celebrity cameos. We had a, so it was so amazing, and they're still doing a great job running this uh, show. So that was my kind of first glimpse at wow, this could really work. You know, this is there's a, there's a, people actually waited for the ad break to see what's going to happen this week. Um, so that was the first thing. Then we cut to where this kind of crossover. I'm in BBH, New York, after having worked with Fallon. Amazing to work with the fantastic Pat Fallon and all that. You know, we could, should talk about that later on about those we've learned from. But I was in BBH, New York, and uh, Ben Malbin, who is now uh, at Google, has a very important position in in Europe, running reputation and things for the brand. He had started BBH Labs in London, which was a blog that we kind of kind of discovered the future of digital. He was in. Uh, he had worked with Google in uh, in Europe, and uh, he said, you know, there's this little project uh, about a browser. So Google has a browser, and uh, at the time we talked to management, and they were a little bit like, you know, why should we do a project? Now project work is a lot. Now that was early days, so like, no, we have. AOR, you know, Agency of Record Relationships, but let's try, I mean, we were like, it's Google, we got to do it. So we did it, and we started first a little campaign that was EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, Asia, it was called Chrome Features. In classic thing what Jay experienced in terms of where technology communicated from the beginning, or still did for the most part, is you say all your things, like it's fast, it's safe, it's got security, it's got, you know, all those things. So it was features. The brief was all features. We talked about all features. Uh, but we did some really fun, like early Rube Goldberg kind of things that later became kind of a Google uh, signature kind of way of communicating. But we, we crocheted the YouTube and things. Very strange. We did that. And then the attention came to Andy Burns and the guys at Creative Lab over in uh, um, in, uh, in the U.S. And they said, okay, the browser is starting to do well. Now remember, when we started... Um, browse, it was the fifth browser in the world. Chrome was fifth. It was in every PC, in every Mac, but no one clicked on it because the number one browser was the one that Jay launched, which was Explorer. Yeah. E meant Internet. Mm -hmm. 
You click on the E, you get to the internet. I did the ads for Internet Explorer. One, <laughs> two, three, four, five, and had just finished writing the copy for Internet Explorer 6 when I quit White <laughs> Amazing. But so when we were getting into this, there were, and there, I think number four was Opera or something. There were so, so many different ones, and uh, Chrome was really not one of the significant ones. But after the features thing and some good work around Europe, it was not only that film, but other things. Um, we're in LA, so there's sirens here. Um, and then uh, the U.S. said, cool, we're going to take the browser, but the brief is speed. A very American, like very focused, speed is sexy, let's do speed. So we did a campaign called Chrome Fast. We built machines that tried to see how fast this was, called um, Google's Chrome Speed Test and things. Now, that it climbed up to like three in the world of browsers when uh, Lorraine Tuhill and um, Larry and Sergey and everyone at Google said, okay, we're going to make Chrome a super brand. We're going to put it up with maps, with YouTube, with search and those things at the time, which meant a lot of budget. So it was, you know, mm -hmm. super bowl, blah, blah, blah. You, any kind of media in the world, paint the world with this thing. And we actually got a bit nervous. So we were... So the team, we had a small, amazing team, a lot of great people. My, my brother at the time, Heidi Hackmer, who's now um, at the um, uh, Sean Zuckerberg Foundation, Ben Malbum, who's now at Google. It was um, a, lot, a lot of great people. Uh, Colleen Letty is now uh, at, uh, at Droga. We were an amazing crack team of people, and we worked in a very small, collaborative way. But we were like, why are they making a browser? It's free. Why the community? Like, I, from Google, I'm, they're helping me get places to organize my life. Like, there's, there's got to be a reason why they do this. So we asked the, the you know, the, the marketing department, and they were like, well, yeah, why are we making a browser? They, they didn't really know. And fair enough, in an organization like that, where innovation is so, so we're like, who knows them? Well, I guess, you know, Sundar built it, so I guess Sundar would know. Uh, Sundar, who is now CEO of Google, was built Chrome, and we said, "Can we? Could we ask? Could we ask Sundar why? Why are you making a browser?" And they were like, that, "Well, that's going to be really tough." And you know, in Google, engineers are the rock stars. Like you, you don't. But we did get a slot of 15 minutes at Mountain View headquarters with Sundar. So we went there, a small little team, very polite, you know, lots of security. Sat down. Thank you so much for taking your time. Um, why are you making a browser? And he was like, we're, we're not making a browser. And we go, well, with all respect, we worked on this for two years, you know, browser, you know, Chrome, the browser you built it, he was like, yeah, yeah, fine. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but no one browses anymore. No one goes to surf the web. You go there with a purpose. You go there to organize carpool, plan for the wedding, to connect with friends. No one is browsing. That's why we built a doer. That's why we connected it to YouTube, to Gmail, to search, to all these things. And he cracked it for us right there. The web is what you make of it. So that was the, what then became, it's still number one. Uh, and we did, a, I think, what, I'm incredibly proud of that campaign. The web is making lots of great people involved with mm. it and Creative Lab too. So we worked together with Creative Lab and Andy and Robert Wong and all those guys uh, kind of side by side in an amazing mayhem of, of a time. Uh, but this goes back to, I know that you're, Matt, you're a strategist. 
the strategy is the idea. In this, in this case specifically, you know, to get back and to see the purpose of something. Why is this product, why are you doing this thing? Uh, you want to talk about it, but it doesn't mean that we, we, we know why. So I think strategy for me, and I think especially when it comes into, I'm, we, you know, we, in some weird way, obviously, because we have different training where we divide strategy and, and, and creativity in what we do, but I, I think strategy is the first, first creativity, and then we are the, we kind of bring it to life. Uh, but that's, I think that, to me, is a story of, if I look back in my history books, I would look at the Chrome as, as a big one, and that moment with, you know, similar to when you sit, sit there, when you sit at Google at that time, I'm sure similar to go to Microsoft, like you're, you know, if you remember at, like Athens, you know, Acropolis at, the, at that time back in the day, I feel like I'm going into Acropolis of this time when I go to Mountain oh, yeah. View, like the world is spinning around that place. And it was amazing to, as a creative, you know, nobody in the world of what they've invented to be able to sit there and listen and actually crack a problem to say that's what we're that's the one that's it you know that was so that was that's the other one awesome awesome so thank you both for taking us sort of from your first to your favorite and bringing um sort of from your personal history and origins in the industry now we're we're sort of up at the present it's it seems like and i'm wondering if you can uh, sort of as we round out the podcast, um, start to speculate a, a little bit on the impact of what I see as this sort of merging, not just of advertising and media, but also marketing and sales, digital communication. It seems like some of the distinctions between things like creativity and strategy and all the different components that make up a campaign of this nature um, you know, how do you see it playing out in terms of where the power lies, in terms of where um, the sales channel is going, and, and how things are going to shake out as we all sort of settle into um, what all this great technology has provided? Wow, there's a lot in there. All right. One, one, one thing, the place to start perhaps is, um, is that, and CJ agrees, I think everything is the same. But everything's changed. Sure, help <laughs> that. Everything's the same in terms of it's the same training, it's the same thinking. It is knowing your homework, know the strategy, understanding the audience, knowing what people care about, finding the values in the brand, authentic, what's authentic about it, and then apply that to what's what's changed. Is the tools are very different, the outlets are different, the way you consume them are different, all things, but. Let's not mix up that we have to have different tactics or learnings in the same field. I think there is a lot to learn from experts nowadays that we didn't have to as much before. There's, um, but I think, you know, at very simply, like, be useful, be entertaining, or beware. <laughs> like, those three are yeah. – uh, you get you – get, there's those two left for me. Entertaining is a fantastic way of, of you know, because we're still about attention. It's still about finding, it's, it's still going to be partial information about things that are, are new that you want to get out in the world. But then now the opportunities of being useful, the opportunities of, of, of you know, all the tools out there that sometimes it was like the agency was, you know, you talk about the, um, what we call it, tone of voice. You know, we defined that, and that was something that we, I'm sure as a copywriter, Jay, you worked a lot on, like, what's the tone of voice? And 
And I think now it's almost like the tone of action from brands. What are you going to do? And then you can talk about it. That's going to be your voice, what you, what you do. And then a lot of that is, I think that's clear, it's clearing up to me as opposed to getting more muddy in some ways. Uh, that's the same old mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree in a lot of ways, but I think I, I come at it from a few different perspectives. Yeah. The one thing I, I might uh, challenge you a little bit on is I do think tone of voice matters or, or knowing what a brand voice is, but having zero supposition about where that voice shows up in the world and in what format. So yeah. we were all wedded to, for so many years, one way of doing things. Very few, this is well-trod territory, so I won't go into it, but very few interruptive media formats into which we were to place our quote-unquote creativity, and then the media agencies would find the most efficient way for that interruptive message to (laughs) interrupt somebody who had otherwise tuned into something they wanted to be entertained by. So that era is over. Now, I think Pella and I were a solid decade early in our, in our, you know, uh, in fleeing to Los Angeles and building marketing institutions that are capable of creating content and experiences that attract and engage an audience rather than interrupt it, but are equally good at driving brand and business results as interruptive media. And so we're entering what, what we like to call the era of the content-centric campaign, that thing we put at the center with that important voice is attractive and is engaging, and then we can use whichever appropriate forms of interruptive media we need to to either draw attention to the center of the campaign or to do some very specific transactional aspects of the campaign. But, but we both, I think, I think it's people both of us here, we see this as a moment of tremendous opportunity. Yeah. Back to Pella's point that the basic tools are the same. If you are a solid, let alone great strategist, a solid, let alone great marketing creative, then you have more opportunity than you've ever had before. The institutions, whether those are the institutions of advertising agencies or media agencies or the sales organizations associated with them or the distribution of content, all of those institutions are in massive flux. Again, that's well-trod territory. But, but the thing that doesn't change is that a great idea can persuade a human being to choose one brand or product over another. So is there has never been, in our opinion, a better time to be in advertising. It's just that the definition of what advertising is is up for grabs. And so you have two people mm-hmm. sitting here who are saying, do not interrupt, attract rather than distract. Rather than distract. This is our one opportunity to prove that when we create something that people really want to engage in, they will choose to be a part of our brand, they will choose to buy our product. So I have no taste whatsoever for all of the doom and gloom out there for the industry. These are publicly traded companies who are wedded to an old distribution model. Those companies need to crumble, and they will. But the idea of advertising and marketing, that's not going away. So there's a $100 billion cartel breaking up right now. For those of us who have another 20 good years in us of working, that's a business opportunity. Yeah. I wish I were a better business mm-hmm. mind, but in the meantime, I'm a creative solution <laughs> provider. Going to, just doing my best. I think I, well, I, I, subscribe, I subscribe to all that. Sorry, Matt, you were saying? 
No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to add, so I think the tone of voice is obvious. I don't want to say that it's not important. I said it. it's the differentiator. It was, it's the definition of the brand, but it's not the differentiator perhaps as much anymore because you could buy your time to speak, and the way you spoke differentiated you. Now you can be everyone. What you do is going to kind of spread longer maybe than the way that you speak. Uh, but I, I subscribe to it. Uh, I think one thing that excites me, and I'm on Jay's team, on the, on the excitement team, uh, which is when I got to LA, I came here and I, was, I, 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 I went back to the founders in New York, or sorry, in, in London to see if I could move out to the West Coast and go to uh, Hollywood and do what Jay's done. Uh, and in, within a strategically driven um, uh, agency like BBH, I had to have an insight. So to have an insight, you have to, that's obviously what we taught our clients or the clients asked us. And so my insight was that people pay uh, for entertainment and they pay to avoid advertising, so we have to learn from entertainment. That was very simple. And when I got here, I realized that the big win is if we can get on the other side of things. So. I'm I was currently working for a company that people pay to avoid my product. And then <laughs> a couple years in, a couple years in now, I can say that I'm very, very close to like I, I know we're going to be on the other side very soon, which is that people will pay to see advertising. So Lego Movie is a great example of that. Uh, Red Bull has done amazing in that world. A lot of things that that Jay's doing. The the world. Our world will completely change. When I'm, and this might be over positive, but right now I'm pitching to get business to work with clients because I'm on the cost side of things. I am asking for the business to help mm. them with their business, right? But if I can create products that will generate money, I'm on the I'm on the other side of things. I'm very excited to get into that space, <laughs> you know, to be a, a, a provider of solution that's not just a secondary win, but it's you can make money on the ad, on your story. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I, I really hope that Burberry is on their way to Netflix and have sold that, that series because that's the way to get the money back for making the, making the trailer. So, I, you know, there's, there's, that to me is a, like, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, equation where everyone wins. That before the, the consumer didn't win, the brand didn't really win, the agencies didn't really win. And I think that it was, I mean, it was great times as well, but I just think that in the disruption what happened, everyone started to get nervous about things and obviously we all serve the consumers and the day and they show us the way, but they are now showing us that if we do it good enough, they're willing to pay for it. And that gives a value to advertising that it's beyond just propelling the business itself, is that it has a value in itself, which is really exciting. Sometimes it has a value for other advertisers. Yeah, we, we yeah, created it. You know, I, I don't know where we are in time, we're way over, but uh, I'll give you a, an anecdote about making money, just keying off of what, <laughs> what Pella said. So our client, Neiman Marcus, despite being one of the highest-end retailers in the world, if not the highest-end retailer in the world, um, like a lot of retailers, um, is not having their greatest moment. They need younger customers. And uh, we had a crazy supposition for them 
that somewhere hiding inside the grungy dude fest of South by Southwest was a group of fashionable young women. Fashionable young women who were there not just for music where South by Southwest started, but who were now there for, for tech and for film and for the business track. And there was a women's track there. And it's become more of a cultural conference. And so we, we made a bet, uh, a bet based around a broader platform we were working on for Neiman Marcus called Make Some Noise. The idea that Neiman Marcus, who has a woman in the CEO seat, a woman in the CMO seat, 70% of their employees and their customers are women. So they needed to really take a stand for women in our opinion. So we called the platform Make Some Noise. Neiman Marcus is going to make some noise around women who were making their own noise in fashion, film, art, tech, business, and more. So we did this as a live event. We did a lot of things. It took over their entire 360 brand campaign, or as they would call it, their omni-channel campaign. Uh, but what we did at South by Southwest was we created one place. It was a house that was programmed with inspiring women by day, panels, speakers, activities, beautiful Instagrammable rooms that they could walk through. So I'll get to the other brands playing a role in a second. But for example, one room that was all about sound that Bang & Olufsen B&O headphones came in on. So we built this thing. It could hold 500 people at a time at South by Southwest. When we announced it, we had 19,000 RSVPs. So the first thing we learned is we should wow. charge tickets. But beyond that, we didn't <laughs> charge tickets. We did, however, we spent about a million dollars to create this, and other brands started to approach us. Chase approached us, an important banking partner of Neiman Marcus, of course, who said, well, can we do your VIP area? We'll pay you to do the VIP area. Bang & Olufsen, we'd love to have a room that's all about sound. We'll pay you. One of our uh, spirits clients, we'd like to do the bar. So when all is said and done, without me giving you a list and the dollars associated with it, Neiman Marcus actually made $1.1 million in selling sponsorships to their $1 million event. They also did, on site, $1.2 million in sales and the average age of the customer was 20 years younger than the average Neiman Marcus customer, and 60% of those customers were first-time Neiman Marcus customers. But back, back wow. to the point, yeah. we, we yeah. built something that, that brought the audience to us, yeah. and lo and behold, when you build something that people want to engage with, they'll pay for it. Other brands will pay for it, and the consumers themselves will pay for it. Yeah. So there's my anecdote to back up supposition. I could not agree more. Love it. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Okay. So um, I think we should wrap up. I could probably wrap with you guys for the next five hours. Um, yep. And I totally appreciate your time and all the, uh, the stories and your insights and everything. If you could just um, sum up maybe, uh, so you're both in the excited camp, not the doom and gloom camp. Is there one um, aspect, uh, maybe it was just that thing you just talked about, about the idea of creating um, basically an advertising platform or intellectual property, if you want to take it that far, that, that itself um, inspires people about the brand and produces a financial outcome. But if it's that or some other aspect of this new world, what is it that you're most excited for? And what is the thing that you're uh, maybe out to discover that you haven't quite figured out yet? I think we talked we talked a lot about that, but I think in general, not that we should. This would be the five-hour edition, but I'm just going to do it very short. 
the political landscape in the world is bringing out creativity like never before, and I think that's a very exciting. That's exciting to me. I think there is uh, creativity is on the rise. You know, and if we go back to the opening up of media, all these things, of you know, the golden age of television and beyond, all these things is like creativity is absolutely alive and thriving in, in so many ways. There's so many new outputs and, and ways, and and it's the it's the de- defense against all the bad, and it's always going to win, and it makes it feels great. <laughs> I love that that thought on politics. I've become um, quite obsessed with the Trump campaign as a marketer, without getting into politics or ideology. What it's worth, I'm you know well left of center, although I like business and think it should be protected. Uh, but the Trump campaign is the best-run Facebook campaign ever. So I set mm-hmm. out to find the people responsible for it, and I've met with those people. And there's one person in particular whom I've become somewhat close with, and I'm having a drink with him again next Sunday night, and he's not an ideologue either. He obviously is willing to work for ideologues, and I don't judge him for it, but what I've learned in the hours of talking to this person about how that campaign worked on Facebook blows my mind every time I hear it. And really it's as simple as this, they just followed the Facebook playbook. That's all they did, test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, test and change, test and change, test and change, test and change. They ran, and this is public, 150,000 pieces of original content over the course of the campaign, each one optimized by what was learned by the, from the one before it. Like, sure, there's machine learning, sure, there's AI, but they just followed the Facebook. So I guess that's a part of your question is, is there is so much still to learn from successful case studies and anyone who's going to thrive in the next 20 years. We, Pella and I, certainly have a take on the market that we believe is forward thinking, but we are in constant curiosity mode to make sure that we stay ahead. In terms of your broader question, I think uh, our take on the market together is that the best brands in the world will move beyond interruptive advertising to create campaigns that generate and participate in popular culture. They will, they will break off the shackles of what an ad has meant for the last 50 years and the way ads have been judged in terms of efficiency and effectiveness for the last 50 years, and they will just put their brand into the world in the way they feel is most appropriate, and we're both betting that they will reap the business, business rewards as a, as a result. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Okay. On that, this- on that, I feel I feel like Jay. I'm, I'm. I don't know if you feel like that, but I'm the most calm, and feel the most at home when I have no idea really what I'm doing, because I know I'm onto something new. If that were true of me, I'd be calm all the time. But you know you're onto something new. You know, it used to be like confidence comes from knowing your stuff. I think now confidence is that I I know that I'm onto something new because I don't really know. I know all the kind of the rules and all the, the regular, like, to, to be in that new land is the most kind of calming and thrilling because then, then I'm, I'm focusing my attention in the right way. It's funny you say that. I, I just had a conversation with our entire, we have a weekly staff meeting, our whole group, about 50 people in a room, a uh, giant conference table at, at CAA, 
and uh, we're going to do something where we're going to go start going back through our own greatest hits, one or two a week, because it occurs to me that we very, very rarely use the same format twice. So we had the first and second ever brand film in Sundance in 2009 and 2010. And then we never made that type of film before. We never even entered a brand film in Sundance. It's been eight years, seven years. We haven't even entered. And I was like, God, can anybody give me a good reason why we haven't done that? Like, have we, have we presented it and we're not selling them? And everyone's kind of looking around going, like, I don't remember presenting anything that we thought would be a kind of a Sundance-worthy film. And there are... There were about a dozen formats that we just spewed out that we had. We did the first ever live interactive show on Hulu for our client Microsoft Bing. Well, why have we not done a whole bunch more live interactive? Like, that seems like a really rich format. Why haven't we done that? And everybody's looking around going, I don't know why. So we're actually going to spend time now looking back at, at formats and make sure we're not throwing things away just because we did them. But, it, but, but the point I want to make is, is Pellas, which is I think – that we've surrounded ourselves at CAA Marketing, and I think Pell has done it here at BBHLA and around the world, with people who are so obsessed with what's new that they're constantly looking forward, and after they do something successful, rather than say, well, let's repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, they just move on and try to find the next successful thing. And my goal for probably the next five or ten years with the group is make sure we're doing the best of both. Yeah. Take those formats that we stumbled upon, make them better, hone them, use them to to the benefit of our clients, and also be driving forward. Yeah. That's great. Beautiful. All right. So I think we're at a great stopping point. We should probably set up time maybe in a couple of months we can revisit this. Maybe it becomes a more of a quarterly thing. I think this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I totally appreciate your guys' time and insight and everything. And uh, just want to thank you again for being on this podcast to sign off for our Listeners, this is Matt Berman for Make a Difference Entertainment. You've been listening to Made from Scratch on Anchor with Jay Goodman from CAA and Pelle Chanel. Hopefully I said that right from BBH. And um, hopefully uh, <laughs> folks enjoyed it and talk, talk again soon. Matt Berman, we very much enjoyed the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. You got it, guys. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Yeah, so, bye. Thanks, bye.